We're happy to make podcasts available for selected ed webinars for your listening pleasure. If you'd like to receive a CE certificate, you must watch the video recording. Recordings and quizzes can be found in the EdWebinar archives. Please visit home.edweb.net slash podcasts for more information. I just want to say hello and thank you all for joining our session on transforming teaching to support all learners. Uh, we have a very tight uh, agenda for you all today. So uh, I'm going to dive right in and just try to, to keep up. Uh, so my name is Samantha Ducrea and I work for the Modern Classrooms Project. Um, I'm a former teacher. I taught in California, Arizona, and South Korea. And my why for being here today is that I left the classroom because, like a lot of educators, I was burnt out. Um, I was giving so much of myself to this job. And through the test scores and student engagement, I could see that I was consistently failing at least 10% of my students who needed more support than I could give them. And my hope for you all today is that you feel the opposite of what I felt, uh, that you feel reinvigorated by the possibility of reaching all of your students. So that's my hope for you today. And like I'd mentioned earlier, I'm here on behalf of the Modern Classrooms Project. Uh, we are a nonprofit that supports educators in learning actionable strategies to create more learner-centered classrooms. Um, I'm going to play this video now because it explains our approach uh, better than I could. So let's go for it. Here's the challenge of teaching. You work hard to plan great lessons, but when you get to class, you realize. Some of your learners already know this. They're bored. Some of your learners have gaps in what they understand. They're lost. Some of your learners aren't in class at all. They miss out. And somehow, you've got to reach them all. You might feel overwhelmed. Meeting every learner's needs might feel impossible, but it's not your fault, and it's not your learner's fault either. It's just that when it comes to learning, one size does not fit all. So what can you do? How can you teach in a way that meets every learner's needs? First, create short videos to explain your content. You're still the one teaching, but learners can watch your lessons anytime, anywhere. They can skip ahead or rewatch if they need. You can spend class time working one-on-one -on -one with learners or leading small groups. And learners who miss class can always catch up. Second, help learners pace themselves. Learners who are ready to go faster can move ahead as soon as they're ready. Learners who need more time have the time they need. Learners who miss a day can pick up right where they left off. And you're there to support and encourage each of them. Third, focus on mastery. When learners show they understand, they can move on. If they don't understand yet, help them, then give them another chance. This prevents learning gaps, and it shows learners that when a classroom really meets their needs, they can master anything. Teacher-created videos, self-pacing, and a focus on mastery. We call this a modern classroom. It's a model built by teachers for teachers. Research shows that in modern classrooms, learners feel more capable and engaged, while teachers feel happier and more effective. Modern classrooms are calmer and everyone in them can thrive. Teaching this way takes practice, but there are free resources to help you get started and a global community of educators who can support you along the way. Remember, you're a teacher. You're up for the challenge, and you really can meet every student's needs. So what are you waiting for? 
your journey to a modern classroom begins today. And as I mentioned before, uh, we have Cassie and Amanda on the line today from the True Measure Collaborative. I will let them introduce themselves and take it away from here. Awesome. Thanks so much, Samantha. Uh, thank you all uh, for having us. This has been um, so fantastic just getting prepared for this. Um, I would say happy afternoon, happy evening, happy morning, wherever you're coming from. Um, my name is Amanda, and um, I am an educator here in uh, Seattle, Washington. Um, I have experience, um, or about 20 years of experience, um, and I work as the associate director for the True Measure Collaborative. Um, I started in California and made my way through to Washington um, and to work with all um, ranges of populations with an emphasis on special education um, and have been with the True Measure Collaborative for uh, quite a few years now and absolutely love it. I'm never uh, bored. <laughs> um, we go through um, and support schools um, throughout the state uh, and I absolutely um, I learned so much uh, within my role, and I'm also a BCBA, um, which is a board-certified behavior analyst, um, so that gives me a little bit of a different lens uh, when I go into things and have my master's in special education and just keep on learning. And I'm going to turn it over to Cassie. Thanks, Amanda. I'm Cassie. Thank you all for having me. I'm happy to be here. Uh, I am also based in Washington State, except I'm over on the east side, so I am in Spokane. Um, I was in, in the classroom for a little over seven and a half years, um, and so I have been able to be involved in inclusive practices and really hone in on strategies that were really successful for uh, my students in the classroom. And I recently transferred to the True Measure Collaborative and became a program manager. And I've been able to take what I have learned in the classroom and to be able to help coach and support other student, other school leaders and other teachers. Um, so it's been a really awesome journey so far and I'm really excited to be here. Oh, awesome. Thanks, Kathy. All right, we're going to jump um, in because we have a, a lot of content that's going to be really packed within this hour. Um, and really what uh, we're focusing on is certain strategies and tips uh, for teachers to reach and support all learners. Um, we, there is going to be an emphasis um, on special education, um, but the strategies and the practices that you are going to learn are going to be able to be applied to, um, to all students. So the agenda for today, uh, we sort of started already with the welcome and the introductions. Um, then we're going to transition over um, and we'll talk a little bit about the True Measure Collaborative, kind of who we are. And we want to get a sense of also who's in the room. So we'll do a quick poll. And then we're going to give you an overview, a very, very quick overview um, of special education laws, the history of special education, um, to look at a little uh, video about it as well. And then we're going to dive into a closer look at best practices for serving all students. After that, there is going to be some time for some questions and answers. Um, and then we'll wrap up after that. 
All right, so the True Measure Collaborative, just very quickly, um, what we do is uh, we are a nonprofit that is based in um, Seattle, Washington, and we travel throughout the state, and we really support schools um, to serve their marginalized populations. Our emphasis is in special education. That's where our area of expertise is. Um, and really, the purpose and the vision is to make sure that all students are included and that all of their rights are being met. Um, and really, um, our, our vision um, and our, our purpose statement is grounded in Mahatma Gandhi's um, statement that says, a true measure of any society can be found in how it treats its most vulnerable members. And quite often, our students that have a little bit higher level of needs are our most vulnerable members. So we go in and we do coaching with um, administrators, with general education teachers, special education teachers. Um, we bridge the gap between families and communities. So pretty much um, anything that we can do to make sure that our students um, get, get what they need. Okay, I'm really curious about who's with us, uh, just kind of taking a look. So you'll see a poll up um, just to see who is in the room, how many administrators we have, gen ed teachers, because these strategies that we are going to be talking about aren't necessarily specific just to special educator. The other thing is, it's not also just specific to educators. You're going to find that, oh, I could use this with my kids at home, or oh, I could use this with my partner, my spouse. I get that a lot. Um, all right. It looks like the numbers, okay, we've got about half gen ed teachers in here, some special education teachers. Okay. I like seeing the coaches there. That's great. And administrators. Bravo. Thanks for showing up. This is awesome. Got to have our sports staff. Great. Okay, this is awesome. So now that we know who's with us, we're going to give you a little bit of an overview of how we're going to be um, approaching today's, um, today's talk. So we're going to start very broadly. So we're going to gently touch on the federal and state um, and which leads into the district laws about special education. Um, and we're going to talk about some best practices that start at the federal and state level. Then we're going to get more into what that looks like in the school setting, even more focused than into the classroom. And then within the classroom, if there are certain individuals or students that need some really high level interventions what some of the most high-level practices are for that. So as we start with the federal and state law, one of the questions that often comes up is, who do we serve? Well, by law, public schools serve all students with the full continuum of general education and special education services. The key phrase here is full continuum. Right. So a lot of times what we find is, oh, there's the general education classroom and then there's the special education setting that should not be happening. That is not an inclusive way of uh, addressing or um, conducting education. Right. So we need to have this full continuum for students because not every student is going to fit into a specific category along with their peers. It's all individualized. So when we look at who we are serving, the law says we need to serve all students with the full continuum. What that then sort of leads to is understanding the special education law. So we call this alphabet soup because in special education, boy, oh boy, are there abbreviations, acronyms all over the place that a lot of people just don't get. Um, but for here, for the purposes of this training, 
the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. That's sort of what got everything started. And that was in 1975, which y'all, that's not that long ago. So we are still pretty new in this. Um, and also it's 2023. So it's time for us to be um, really up on our inclusive practices. Um, and that means not just, oh, well, I'm going to make an exception for this student. It should be the norm. It should be the, the regular practice that we have. So IDEA um, in 1975 basically said, hey, if you have a disability and um, you need special education services, then it's your right. So essentially all of those students who were quote unquote different um, that had previously been in an institution were now saying, hey, you get access to a free appropriate public education. So under IDEA, if you qualify for specially educate or for special education services, that means that you get access to or what you have delivered is specially designed instruction. Different states um, call this different things. There's SIA, uh, SAI, there's SDI. What we in Washington say is specially designed instruction. So that means if you have um, needs under for special education services, whatever area of need, you are going to get specially designed instruction in that area. The IDEA says that students who require special education services get access to a free appropriate public education. So the keyword here is appropriate. It's really hard because appropriate is subjective. However, it does need to be subjective because every person's different. So folks with a special education that um, do qualify for special education services, they receive an IEP or an individualized education plan in that document that says, okay, here's the area of need and this is what the student needs in order to access the gen ed curriculum to make progress in their learning. That all needs to happen in the least restrictive environment. A lot of folks will say, oh, well, a one-on-one -on -one is the least restrictive because then the child has or the student has someone with them and they can go and do whatever they want. But when we think about the least restrictive environment, we really need to be thinking about what restrictions are on that student, even with supports, in accessing their peers and accessing the gen ed curriculum. So a lot of times I have families that will say, well, the least restrictive environment is a one-on-one -on -one for my child. Well, if you have a child who has an adult with them all the time, is that adult impeding in some areas the type of support where they could be on their own and be individual and, and be independent in that area? So when we think about least restrictive environment, we really need to have an open mind about what the least restrictive environment actually is for those students. So as we're talking about who we serve and how the law pertains to that, there is um, a video that we're going to sh uh, show by Shelley Moore, um, and it's it's really understanding the evolution of inclusion, which also um, sort of parallels with the history of special education. When we talk about serving all students, that is inclusion. So you have to understand that serving all students, you do need to understand where we were, where we are, and where we should be going. And that's what this video is about. So go ahead and play the video. Welcome to five more minutes, useful videos in five minutes or less that support the teaching and learning of all students. I'm your host, Shelly Moore. Today's topic is the evolution of inclusion. 
Okay, so you remember the dots? I know, I know, I know. I've shown you these before. But one colleague of mine suggested to me once, he goes, what if we didn't look at these as different concepts that we compare to each other, but instead as an evolution of time? It was totally brilliant. Now we can look at this timeline through the lens of any marginalized population, but to understand this timeline from the inclusion and disability perspective, we have to go back in time a little bit. Many of us know or are connected to someone who experienced institutionalization. It was even recommended to families by doctors. Although British Columbia was the first province in Canada to close down their institutions, there are still individuals living in these conditions across Canada today. The institutionalization movement is an example of exclusion. It separated individuals with disabilities from their families without choice. But the disability rights movement over the past 50 years, with the hard work of some incredible self-advocates and families, and maybe a little help from Geraldo Rivera, pushed communities to shift so that individuals of all abilities were welcomed and living in the same settings as their family and friends. This shift from institutions to communities this was the start of the inclusive evolution. We have movement, but can we do better? Although many individuals are no longer excluded from their families and communities, they were, and let's be honest, they still are, expected to attend segregated schools or self-contained special education programs that are totally separate from the rest of the school community. And so parents started to ask some very good questions. You see, children with disabilities have siblings without disabilities, and families wanted all their kids to have equitable access to community-based education together. Kids started to be integrated into classrooms with their peers. They're in math together. They're in gym class together. They're eating lunch together. Kids are together. This is better. The shift from segregated to integrated schools and classrooms, this is the next step in the evolution of inclusion. We have movement, but can we do better? Well, this is where things get tricky because integration, it doesn't take long to realize that just being together, it's not enough. Although in the same classroom, students with disabilities are often just that. They're physically in the classroom. They may sometimes have parallel activities, but mostly it's loosely connected classroom tasks. Now you don't need me to tell you that just physically sharing space and time is enough to make you feel like you belong in a community. I mean, come on, there are Disney movies made about this. Breathing the same air is not enough. Do you remember the Titans? I do. The evolution from integration to inclusion is now the topic of many conversations in communities and schools around the world. How do we support individuals to be meaningfully included and not just physically integrated? It's not just about where kids go in their day, but why? What is the purpose to the places that they go? It's now school-based teams and staff that are asking questions about how to do this. How can we support purposeful and meaningful placements for kids with disabilities? In inclusive classrooms and schools, students aren't just present, but they have roles and responsibilities in their classrooms and also meaningfully connecting to their peers. This is inclusion. So there you have it, my friends. A brief history of inclusion in about five minutes. If this is interesting to you though, definitely investigate your local history as well, because every community is in a different place in this journey, and it's so valuable to know where we've come from. The other thing though, is looking at these visuals as a timeline, it really helped me to shift my own thinking from, which bubble am I at, or, not at and shift to more about where are we now in our inclusive journey and what's our next step. 
All of a sudden, the goal of inclusion becomes action-oriented and just feels so much more possible. We may not all be at the same place in the journey, but we can all move forward. We can do better. And so this is the question I'm going to leave you with today. Can we still do better? Do you think there's another evolution in inclusion? What might that be? How can we inch even more forward to make inclusion even better? Thanks, Geraldo. As Shelly was saying, yes, everything looks different in different districts and different schools. Keeping that in mind and knowing that inclusionary practices is our ultimate goal, we are going to shift into some of the approaches and just some of um, the ways that we can sort of implement um, more inclusionary practices into the districts, into our schools, into the classrooms, and then individually with instruction. When we take a look at our districts and schools, all means all. So when we're talking about the law that says that we are um, responsible for teaching all students and serving all students with the full continuum of gen ed and sped services, that means all. So when we take a look at really the, the MTSS pyramid, so you see over in the lower right corner that we have tier one, tier two, and tier three. We have to be very careful not to label our students in a way that restricts them. So instead of labeling a student, we want to we want to believe in what they can do. Right. So one of the things that Shelley Moore also says is, you know, well, when someone asks you how tall you are, I'm only five one. But when someone asks me how tall I am, I don't say, well, I'm not six foot. Right. So you want to be focused on what the students can do, where they are at and not what they are missing. Some of the students, so all of our students in our schools are all general education students, period. We all are a part of a classroom. All of our students are general education students. Now, some of those gen ed students might need an IEP or special education services for some areas of need, not necessarily all areas of need. So, for example, you might have someone who is highly, highly intellectual and can really master math and ELA concepts, but their social skills might need a little bit of help. Right. Alternatively, you might have a student who has really strong ELA skills, but just can't get that math down. You are not going to say, oh, well, that's a kid who's a sped kid 100 percent when only 10 percent of them is really the area that they need. So those labels can be really detrimental. We want to be careful about how we refer to our students. Our students with IEPs are not sped students. They're not IEP kids. They are not lower students or behind students, right? They may learn differently, but it doesn't mean that they are less than. We have to be very careful that we're not getting into um, a practice of othering our students because that naturally leads into the discrimination. That's what we want to get away from. When we are talking about all means all, 
As educators, we need to operate as a collective. At the TMC, the language that we use with our teacher is we lets us our. So when we use this sort of language or terminology, it automatically brings people into a partnership. You're not alone. It's not I and you. It's we are doing this together for our students. Let's figure out what we need to do to meet their needs. We are doing this with our students. We are not doing this to our students and we're not doing it for them. They can do it. They can absolutely do it. They're going to surprise us every single day with the things that they are able to do. We just have to believe in them. When we are operating as a collective in meeting the needs of all of our students, we all have different responsibilities. Now, specifically for our students who have IEPs or receive special education services, we sort of gave this graphic here that administrators, gen ed teachers, special education teachers, related service providers, and often paras or instructional assistants all do the same thing right? We're constantly collecting data. We are giving accommodations and modifications to our students. There's collaboration going on between our general education and our special education teachers. And the cool thing about this graphic is if you take away the column that says implement the IEP, the behavior intervention plan, or provide SDI, those three columns, those other columns, those are all applicable for a general education student who doesn't have an IEP. So when you take a look at the practices that you are engaging in to meet the needs of students who have special education services, it's not just them that benefit from that, right? So all means all. We are also including our gen ed students and our special education students as our students with special education services um, as we're talking about meeting everyone's needs. In order to do that in the best way is you've got to have collaboration. Yes, I get it. Time is scarce. It's really, really hard to find that time. We're all overwhelmed. There aren't enough hours in the day. And if you find the opportunity or a chance to collaborate with your other teachers, their strategies and their approaches are going to knock out a ton of time for you doing your own research, right? You are each other's best resources. So when you are collaborating, make sure that you do it frequently. It might be two minutes a day, right? It might not be a whole lot, but you might be getting a little bit um, of nuggets, right? So we want to talk about what did work and what didn't work because that's all data, right? So you want to talk about what isn't working and why. Then you can learn from that. It also is going to tell you about the learning of the student. You want to plan for upcoming lessons with UDL, Universal Design for Learning, for all students. So you might have a special education teacher who says, oh, here's a really good way that we can engage more students and a general education teacher that says, well, I'm really confident in the curriculum and here's how we're going to put those two together to meet the needs of more than just one student in that class. We want to leverage your teacher expertise as much as possible and share resources and support. 
y'all, we're teachers. We do not make a lot of money. So we need to find the resources um, that we can as um, in the best financial way that we can. And a lot of times that means free. Um, so use your your other educators um, that you that you are working with. And that is really going to increase um, the way that things are running within the district and the school. And then that's going to lead into things into the classroom. So as we talk about the classroom, we really want to, again, like we were talking about earlier, we started really broad with federal and then we got into the schools and districts and now we're getting into the classroom. As you look into the classroom, you also want to start as, as broad as you can and then get more narrow and more focused. So when you're walking into a classroom and you look at it from a broad sort of view, you take a look around the classroom and you say, okay, can we see the culture and climate in here? Are there norms and expectations? What are the routines in this classroom? Are there prompts or visuals? And are they culturally responsive? That's very, very important for our students to see visibility and to see likeness in who they are and their cultures represented. Additionally, is there intentional seating? Let's be very clear here. It, this doesn't mean assigned seating. Intentional seating can shift. It can shift by student need. It can shift by content. It can shift by time of day. Um, so when we have every single part of these elements for the classroom in itself, if those are locked in, then it creates a safer environment for our students. And when students have a safer environment, they're more open to instruction and to learning and growing, and they feel safer about making mistakes and about sharing with their peers. You want to start one pretty broad with classroom culture and climate by the environment, how things are set up, and what things look like. When we're giving instruction, when we are talking with all of our students, one of the things that we find most often when we go into a classroom is that teachers are telling students what not to do. Don't throw that paper across the room, right? Don't push so-and-so. What are you doing standing over there? Is that how we act in this classroom, right? That's giving our students nothing. So we wanna switch that from what not to do to what to do. So, hey, a lot of times when we hear no running, what we hear is running. So what is it, if we're, we don't want the students to be running, what is it that we want them to be doing? We want them to be using walking feet, right? This is also a great opportunity to incorporate the we lets us our. So we are using our quiet voices, right? So that automatically they realize they're not alone in it. And it's not just them that is expected to do that. It's everyone that's in the area. When you're giving those expectations, we less is more, right? You don't want to do what I'm doing today and just continue talking endlessly. I know that that is not best practice and I'm naming that. We are gently skimming over some of the high leverage practices. Typically, our trainings dive in really deeply with a lot of workshops and activities with this. But for the purposes of this, when you're talking with your students, less is more. Make sure that it's very slow, that it's short and very simple. 
because a lot of times our students need time to process. So you also need to allow for that wait time. Be very explicit in what you are expecting from your students. When you say, okay, go have at it and go talk in your small groups, you need to be very clear about how loud they are speaking, where they're going to sit with their peers so that they know what those expectations are. Students need to have boundaries, just like we as adults need to have boundaries, our students need to have that as well. At any point, if you can positively rephrase what someone else is negatively saying, for example, a student may tell on another student, he's not supposed to yell, right? Flip that and say, hey, what are we doing? We're remembering to watch our voice levels. So it's a matter of taking the, the what you're not doing or what you're not supposed to be doing and flipping it to what you should be doing. Give those examples and give non-examples for the students that need to know about that. Statements versus questions. Here's another really great strategy. So a lot of times I'll walk into a classroom and the teacher says, well, you know, I asked them to put their books away and they refused. Well, let's be very clear and very intentional about that. So instead of asking a question that says, oh, can you pick up your things? Can you put your things away? If a student says no, well, hey, we asked, right? We asked, can you do this? Hey, will you please push your chairs in? Students like, no. Well, we asked if they would do it and they said no, they answered honestly, right? So if we rephrase that to a statement, it's, hey, it's time to push our chairs in, okay? We are going to line up now, so we're cleaning our things up. Let's clean our things up. So you wanna make sure that what you are explaining to students is very clear. You are telling them what they do want to do and you're refraining from questions and putting it into a statement. It's very hard at first because you feel very bossy, if you will, for lack of a better term. The other thing with statements and questions is that it also sort of translates over from instructions to comprehension, for checking for comprehension. So if you're asking a question, hey, why are they doing that? It's really hard for a lot of our students to parse through and figure out what we are asking. But for our students who think in a different way or need more scaffolds, if you use those fill in the blank statements, you're automatically leading them and guiding them in a more structured way to answer the question or answer and give you the information to check for understanding. That would be harder for your students to answer if you framed it in the form of question. Visuals. I could spend hours on this one. <laughs> so what I typically do for folks is I have you take a look at this slide. On the upper left hand corner, you're going to see a, an image um, of a bicycle with a red circle and a line through it. When you take a look at that, think about what that image says to you. A lot of times we get no riding bikes, bikes not allowed, no bikes in this area. You're not gonna find a bike over here because it's not allowed, right? 
So when you take all of those language or all of those, I guess, interpretations of what that sign means, you have to remember that that sign didn't say a single word, right? So you can get no bikes allowed here. That's four words in just one picture, right? When you think about it, if you look at the upper right-hand corner, the picture of the signal light, for those of us who are in the States, right? When we come to, when we're driving and we come to a signal light, that signal light doesn't say, okay, we're going to switch from green to red to yellow, which means that you are going to slow down. And then when it goes from yellow to red, you need to stop and we're going to wait until it turns to green again. No, it doesn't do all of that. And that's often what we do as teachers is we go on and on and on again, like I'm kind of saying right now. But what does a signal light say? A signal light doesn't say anything. It shows you through the symbols what those different colors mean. This is best practice for all of our students. It provides access for all of our learners and especially for our English language learners. For a neurotypical and neurodiverse, that basically means students whose brains work in a typical way that we would um, sort of expect from the majority of the population versus neurodiverse people whose brains work a little bit differently than what we're used to. It also allows for promoting universal design for learning, which is going to reach all of those students. And it generalizes skills to the community. If you can read a visual or some sort of icon in the classroom, that is going to generalize to the community. You find signs all the time that don't have any sort of verbal that's attached to it. So a picture is worth a thousand words. It really can be, in this case, worth five words, right? But that's five less words that, that students are going to have to be listening to and just process with that one visual. Classroom volume is huge. When you're looking at a large classroom, we want to make sure that the volume is low enough so that it doesn't increase the anxiety level of the students. It can be really challenges, challenging for students that have executive functioning challenges. Executive functioning, what I mean by that is basically um, you're planning. You're planning from one step to, an, to the next step in order to get a task completed. Um, and so if there's a student who has a really hard time getting from one, starting an activity by writing their name on the paper, reading the question, then answering the question, and it's really loud in the classroom, they're going to have a hard time understanding or getting from one step to the next. This also really increases a lot of those behavior challenges that we have. Students that are on the autism spectrum disorder, have ASD or sensory sensitivities, this can really, really impact them, the, the level of the classroom volume. This can also lead to work avoidance and distraction to others. So again, use those visuals, use a call and response or a signal, use a bell that dings, use a gong to sort of bring everybody together with just one sound. You want to model that voice level and have your students match it. The other thing that is so important is if we say, hey, it's getting too loud in here. I need everybody's voices at a voice level one. 
and you continue on with your teaching and you still have three or four students who are laughing and who are really loud, then they're understanding, oh, well, my teacher is going to say that we need to bring our voice levels down, but she didn't really actually wait for us to do it so we don't have to do it. And then you run right back into the same problem of bringing their voice level down again. So mean what you say and say what you mean, right? So, hey, I do need it quiet in here and I'm going to wait until it's quiet. Um, and you want to establish ex ex expectations for respectful listening. That sort of goes hand in hand um, with the voice level of the classroom. In the classroom, one of the things that we see that's so important is teacher engagement. And this might seem like, well, duh, there's a teacher in the classroom. Of course, they're going to be engaged. But as students get older, what we find is in middle school and high school classrooms, the teachers end up staying in one spot for the entire period, right? It's much easier for an elementary, the kindergarten teacher, for example, to move around, right? Because they've constantly, kids, students are constantly moving. But that also is very important for our older students. Move around the classroom. If you have an instructional assistant or a paraprofessional that's in the classroom, have them move around the classroom too. It is going to provide sort of in um, a precursor intervention to any behavioral problems that might happen. It also is going to provide the students faster access to an educator for answering the questions that they might need. Use that positive narration. I see so-and-so has their name on the piece of paper. I see so-and-so is working with their partner and answering together problem solving, right? And it, this provides a really good opportunity for providing that um, the specially designed instruction for your students that are in a general education classroom that have those, um, those special education services. We want to avoid the empty threat. If you don't stop talking, you're not going to get recess. Again, this goes back to the don't versus the do. You want to restate those classroom expectations. And for the schools and classrooms that have long periods, break those up into different activities. Um, it can be on the same content, but the activities need to look a little bit different. The student engagement is also incredibly important because a lot of times what happens is our students fall through the cracks the older the more the more as they get older right so as the older they get the more they fall through the cracks that's what i meant to say so active engagement in learning, have them come up and write on the board, have them model for their peers what um, a good sample of writing is, or hey, this is how we went through the steps to figure out this math problem. Equity sticks are huge. This prevents you from calling on the same students over and over again that are only the students that raise their hands because they know it. Believe that all students can contribute. Please believe that all students can contribute. You'd be surprised at how much one student can learn from another student. Use a student teacher who's mastered the content to help other students. This goes right into CCSS or Common Core State Standards, right? So it allows a student who has mastered content the opportunity to show what they understand in different ways because their peers are gonna understand it differently. Want to make sure that your materials are ready in advance. If you don't have those materials ready, it allows for lag time, and that's when a lot of times those behavioral challenges come in. The students need to have access or opportunity to engage in the same activity or task. 
right? So you always need to allow them the same opportunity, but it might be in a different way. For example, if I have a student who has a really hard time sitting still and their classroom is sitting down in a circle on the floor, I might bring a chair over to the circle and have them sit down in the chair with the rest of the students. It's still the same activity, but it's just done in a different way. Peer facilitation, this is crucial. It's a natural resource. It's less intrusive than having the adults in there. It really fosters those social skills. It can be planned or spontaneous, and it creates responsibility for each of the peers as it relates to their role in the classroom as a part of that culture. It's very reinforcing, and it generalizes skills and academic gains, and it really reduces the othering. There's a positive classroom climate that naturally happens with it, and it promotes self-advocacy skills. I had a student who was a third grader from Australia who had been in a self-contained school for students who had special education services. He had never been to a general education school or classroom. He was um, had never been taught by a special education teacher. He was in an institution where he did puzzles repetitively. Um, he had no verbal skills. He was um, had cerebral palsy, and this kid was bright. We never knew it. We put him in a general education classroom with a lot of support, and he was incredibly motivated by his peers. By the end of the first week, he wanted to walk up and down the stairs with his peers. His parents had never seen him go up and down the stairs independently, and he did it because we gave him the opportunity. His dad built him an arm sling because he couldn't move his arm with enough control so that then only his finger was pointing to the answers. We enlarged a number pad for him, and he was doing multiplication at a higher rate of accuracy than anyone in the rest of the classroom. This is a student who we had never had access, right? So be surprised by your students and also open the opportunity for them to, to surprise you with that. When we take a look at the classroom, then moving to individual, if we figure out something that's going to happen for one person, almost guaranteed it's gonna happen for at least one, if not five, six, the rest of the class. So as we dig deeper, we wanna figure out what's going on in the brains of our students. When you take a look at these graphics here, you have on the left side, a brain that is going crazy. The synapses are firing like crazy. It's very colorful. The brain to the right of that seems a little bit more calm, right? We don't know what's going on in the brain when we see our students in our classrooms, right? If you take a look at the graphic to the right, based on the behavior of our students, some of our students really need that quiet sort of setting that's very structured. Those are the structures that I thrive in. My sister, on the other hand, thrives on the other side of the graphic where it needs to be creative and everything needs to flow, right? That can often give our kids anxiety if they have all this freedom and they don't know what to do. So their behaviors are going to tell you what's going on in the brain, but we have to remember that that's where it starts. It all starts in the brain. 
And that executive functioning is what our brain helps us do. The executive functioning allows us to plan, right? It affects the planning and, and uh, flexibility, and it can lead to difficulty with initiating new actions and difficulty shifting attention from one object to another. So if we know that this is what's happening in the brain, then it allows us to shift our approach, right? So if there's a change in a schedule, we can give someone a heads up. If there's you know, um, a conflict that happens, then we need to figure out, okay, what was missing in their brain and the way they were figuring it out and how do we meet that need? Some of the solutions to executive functioning challenges are really, quite honestly, the transitional cues that you're going to get. That's priming. Hey, in five minutes, we're going to do this. Gives people a heads up of how much time they have left. Um, I mean, we get that when we have to pay our bills, right? Hey, you have two weeks until your bill is due, right? So all of these are not just things that are for our students, but they're things that generalize into the rest of our daily life. We need to restate those expectations prior to the next activity. We're in a transition out of voice level one with our hands by our sides, and then we're moving into the library. Explain the why. People need to know why they are doing something. It makes so much more sense of, oh, okay, now I know why I need to clean up because there's another fun activity coming and I need space on my desk. If there are any unwanted behaviors, remain neutral, especially with, with the executive functioning challenges. Restate, restate those expectations in a very neutral manner. It allows for forward thinking instead of staying in the element of the heightened anxiety or the challenging behavior in the moment and keeps things moving forward. If we do have challenging behaviors, we have to ask ourselves, why is it a challenge? Number one, who is it a challenge for? Is it a challenge for the person who's engaging in it? Likely not. Okay, so then if it's a challenge for us, why is that a challenge? Why is it such a big issue for us? Is it because it's a safety issue? Are they impeding the learning of others? It might be trauma-based. But what function is there that's not being met? What is the reason they're engaging in it? What's the need? When we look at behavior, behavior is communication. If you walk away with nothing else from this, please know behavior is communication. Behavior is communication. I'm going to say it again. Behavior is communication, right? When we're looking at what the behavior is communicating, there's always a function. There are four functions of behavior. You're either, and you need sensory input, you are escaping something, you want access to um, attention. Hey, look at me. I'm going to blurt out and make a joke at an inappropriate time because I haven't been getting attention, right? Tangible means access to something. So um, a food item or a cell phone, right? That's what all of those, when you're the, someone is engaging in behaviors, they are doing it for a reason. And we have to figure out what that reason is so that then we can meet that need. When we are meeting that need or a child, a student is engaging in a behavior that is replacing the challenging behavior, we wanna make sure that we are constantly giving reinforcement and feedback. The thing about reinforcement and feedback is it 
automatically affects your brain, right? There's so many people who are out there, oh, it's very hippy dippy, woohoo, all the good feels, right? Well, there's a reason for it um, that happens scientifically within the brain, the brain responds to reinforcement because the dopamine levels are increased. The synapses that fire together, wire together. So when something positive happens, or when you're engaging in something and you get a really good feeling with that, you're likely to engage in it even more. So that's why the reinforcement and feedback is so important. You do want it to be genuine very quick after the behavior happens and relevant. It's got to be quick. Oh, hey, you showed me this. That meant that. Awesome. Right. And then you move along. Tangible. What were the outcomes? How did you know that they were showing you that they were really concentrating and providing that focus? If we want to be specific, one of the things that we do in our trainings is we'll walk up to a person and we will say, good job. And then we'll ask the person next to them, why did I say good job? And they have no clue why. And then we'll ask the person, why did I just tell you good job? And they have no idea why, right? So we want to shift away from the good job and be specific specific about what it is that they are doing a good job of. So what does it look like? What's actively happening? What does it sound like? Oh, I hear that so-and-so is discussing this and they're bringing up the points that we just talked about. What does it make you feel like? Do you feel proud of a student for what they are doing? We really want to increase the frequency of reinforcement and feedback. On average, this is actually higher now, but research a while back was saying that feedback needed to happen at a rate of four to one, four being the number of positive comments um, to one correction, right? This you will find diminishes and decreases as the students get older. You can hear a kindergarten teacher saying, great job. I love how so-and-so is doing that. Yes, and look, it did it, right? So it's constantly going. You're not going to do that as much in a middle school or high school class. But those students still need it. We still need reinforcement in our lives, right? It makes us feel good. So if it makes us feel good, imagine how much of a difference it's going to make in the lives of our students. Last but not least, you have to have motivation, right? Make it fun. We are teaching. It shouldn't be that our second and third graders or middle schoolers or high schoolers feel like they're sitting through a lecture in a massive lecture hall, right? We want to make it fun. So here's a little video of an example of how much fun can change and can fold into the motivation for getting people to do something that previously was a lot less desirable.
that the video sort of showed you. I mean, it increased by 66% the amount of people who chose to take the stairs versus the escalator simply because it was more fun. So when we create fun in our classrooms, our kids, our students are going to be far more engaged. I would love for you to tackle some of those questions that are in the chat. Uh, for those of you who are joining us, thank you so much for joining us. Um, the I know we're at the hour, uh, so if you do have to jump, we understand. Uh, however, stick around. I'm sure Amanda still has some uh, great gems to share with us. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Okay, um, I have seen a couple of questions in the chat. So first I'm gonna take um, the one from Cynthia and then Ka I know that Cassie has a couple um, that I'm gonna address. So um, Cynthia said, in your work with teachers, where does using sign language fit in for the students with disabilities or in the gen ed classroom for classroom management or do you find a need for it? Uh, absolutely include sign language if you can. Um, it really does allow, it's, it's very interesting. Um, one of my best friends uh, does ASL interpreting and for her kids, she will pair the sign language along with the vocals or the verbals. Um, and what you'll find is it, it promotes um, sort of a different way of communication um, within the students who are deaf or hard of hearing or the students who need those visual cues, right? So if I'm saying sit down, right, and I need the students in my classroom to, okay, hey, you know what? It's time to sit down, right? Then another student might not even hear me, but they may see me do this and sit down. So it's a way of sort of communicating, not with necessarily with a visual or an icon, but it's an action movement that is saying, hey, we need you to sit down right now. And oftentimes what happens is, and we do this, um, it's called stimulus fading and behavior analysis, but you take an item or an action and you pair it with a word, right? And then gradually you fade out that word and then they understand, oh, I know what this action means. So then you don't have to say anything. So you can use ASL, you can do it formally, you can do it for just a few words that you actually like really find that are common. Um, but it does, it makes a big difference in the classroom. I would say use it when you need it um, and when you find that it's gonna be most effective. But I wouldn't say I'm only doing ASL here and I'm only doing verbal language over here, right? If you can blend it in together, then I would do that. The other thing is we do want to be culturally responsive and the deaf and hard of hearing community, um, culturally, you do not speak, right? So if you are in a setting where they are students that are deaf of heart and hard of hearing and the culture is not to speak, then you do want to stick with just the ASL. Okay, I hope that answered that one. I think this is it. Cassie, what do you have? Yeah, Amanda, we had a question in the Q&A box. Um, it was about what to do about a child that is very defiant. He doesn't follow directions and he hits other children. Um, and then I think the best piece of advice, it goes back to what Amanda was saying, behavior is communication. And it's really about getting to the root of what the student is trying to communicate with the behavior that he is um, demonstrating. Mm -hmm. And we have to remember what's motivating the student. Right. So there's a reason why they're still engaging in that behavior. There's some sort of need that's being met. 
So we have to meet that need in a different way before they engage in that behavior. So what motivates them in a different way to do what we want them to do? And that's where the individualized part of that teaching comes. And the other question we got was, as class sizes continues to grow in size, how are we as individuals, as individual teachers expected to give one or two students continual special attention at the expense of the other 30 plus students in the room? Mm, this is hard. Um, first, I think we, I would dig into sort of a little bit of the context of the question. So when we're looking at giving one or two students continual special attention, and then you say at the expense of the other 30, what we want to take a look at is not the othering of it, but we want to take a look at it as a continuum, right? So there may be some students who don't need a whole lot of support, and there may be some students who need support the entire time. There are students who fall at some point within that spectrum, right? And that's where universal design for learning comes in. So when you're creating your lessons and you're looking at your curriculum, you're not just saying, here's what all of the majority of my classroom is doing, and here's what these two students need. It's what is it that these two students need that I can give to the rest of the class that everyone's going to benefit from? Right. So that then you are implementing the strategies for these two students and you are also generalizing those strategies to the other students. The other thing with this is you use those peers. Right. If I am in a classroom and I've got two students who need a lot, a lot, a lot of support, there are other students in that classroom who will start imitating what I am doing. They start using the same phrases that I use with those particular students. So we can use that and create that culture that, hey, it's not just me who's giving the instruction. It's your peers who are helping to encourage you. And it's finding a way of including those students in that spectrum. So we want to sort of pull away from the us versus them and figure out, okay, collectively, how are we using an intervention that gives us the biggest bang for our buck? Yes, the class sizes are growing. Yes, this is going to become more challenging. And yes, it does take a lot of practice. Um, but you will find certain strategies, again, from your gen ed colleagues, from your administrators, from your special education colleagues that um, are going to give you so much more uh, just knowledge um, and just different strategies that you can use that are beneficial that then you will carry through. And you're, it's just a matter of learning how to get it done. It's going to take time. But once you find what works, you're going to know and you're going to generalize it. And then all of the students will benefit from the interventions that you may have used for the students who need a little bit more support. I think that's it for the questions. I don't see anything else in the chat, in the Q&A box. Okay, perfect. All right, if you would like to um, reach out to us, um, our email is truemeasurecollaborative at gmail.com. 
Um, we are also on Facebook and we are on LinkedIn. And I think those are in the chat somewhere. I'm not quite sure. Um, you're going to get a copy of this, uh, this PowerPoint. So I have access to all of those slides. I think that's us for us. That's it for us, Samantha. I'm going to turn it back over to you. Excellent. Thank you both so much for sharing your time and your, your expertise with us. Uh, this has been really informative for me. Um, just as a reminder for everyone who's still on the line, uh, you can get credit for today's session by joining EdWeb. That's how you'll be able to download your certificate and it'll be available in your EdWebinar transcript page tomorrow. Um, if you'd like to learn more about the Modern Classrooms Project and learn some more um, actionable strategies that you can use to implement blended self-paced mastery-based instruction with your own students, visit learn.modernclassrooms.org. And then, as I'd mentioned earlier in the hour, um, we are currently enrolling for a virtual summer institute. Uh, and so you can learn more about that at modernclassrooms.org slash open opportunities. Uh, thank you again for joining us today. And I hope that you all uh, got something out of this. I hope that you're feeling uh, really jazzed about supporting all the students in your classrooms. Um, and uh, yeah. I guess we will catch you next time. We hope you enjoyed this EdWeb podcast. If you'd like to receive a CE certificate, you must watch the video recording. Recordings and quizzes can be found in the EdWebinar archives. Please visit home.edweb.net slash podcasts for more information.